All right, good to see everyone again this morning. You know, we haven't welcomed those of you online for a while. I hear that sometimes. People shoot me a text, say, hey, we're out here, you know. So I know with it being cold and everything, there's probably many of you online, so we're glad that you're joining us. So today we're going to move into this third and final relationship that Paul's going to go through for us. It's that relationship that unfolds at the workplace, and Paul uses this language, servants and masters. But before we jump in, we got to kind of set the context again, and I know I sound an often a lot like a broken record, and some of you are like, we're, we're kind of getting this now, and, and I hope that we are. But it's really important that we know and grasp all that Paul's trying to show us with this particular teaching, and that is all part of being anchored in this bigger teaching, which is that we are to imitate God by walking in love. And that's what happens whenever we're born again into a new life in Christ, we're to imitate God. And that's hard, right? That's really, really challenging for us, which is why Paul says, don't worry, you're not going to do this on your own, you're going to be filled with the Spirit. And that filling with the Spirit is something that's heavy on our hearts as a staff to make sure that we are doing as a church, that we are doing the things he calls us to do, because if we don't, we can't progress in holiness. And we won't achieve all those things Cammie just showed us on that end state. It's so important that each day we are engaging with the Spirit this way. And as we know, there are other ways in which we can engage with the Holy Spirit. We can certainly grieve Him, and we do that an awful lot. And that's when we live in unrepentant sin. We can also choose to quench him when we ignore his counsel, we aren't paying attention to scripture, and there's a distance of sorts whenever that happens, and we draw further and further away from it, and his fruit doesn't ripen in our lives, and that's why Paul says we must be filled with the Holy Spirit, and he says, okay, there's a couple ways you can do this, because I know this can be a little daunting for us. First, there's praising, second, there's giving thanks, and third, there's submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So the question I have for you this morning is, how many people did that this week? Each day, you started out praising, giving thanks. And then it wasn't just the way you started out your day, but it was something you did throughout the entirety of your day, so that your entire day was all about spirit-filled living. And that's why I keep going on about this, because we're not going anywhere as a church until that starts to happen, right? And then, of course, this last one, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, it's tough, because it's all about relationships, and relationships are really, really hard. And that's why Paul says, hey, you can do this in your marriage, and he shows us how. And then he says, hey, you can do this as parents and children. And then he shows us how. And then today, he shows us what it looks like in the workplace. But as we get into this, because every one of us are workers, so this all applies to us, don't lose sight of the fact that when we go to work, we have the opportunity to live a spirit-filled life by how it is that we work. Okay, now it's helpful by starting out by appreciating just how much time in our lives we spend doing work. If we begin working around the age of 18, and we work until, let's say, 70, we will have worked for more than 50 years of our life. And that translates into more than 104,000 hours of work. Think about that for a minute. Now, if you live to 80, that's gonna be about 16% of your life and you may be thinking to yourself, well, 16 is not a very big number. But when you rack and stack all the things that you do in your life, probably the only thing you'll do more than work is sleep. And of course, when you get older, that becomes a bigger, bigger problem too, I know. But all that set aside, so when you think about it that way, we do an awful lot of time. We spend an awful lot of time in the workplace. And that means getting up early, getting after it all day, and sometimes returning home pretty late. 
And that's why choosing our vocation is so important. It's one of the most important things that we'll ever do because not only do we spend a lot of time at work, but our work also ends up shaping the quality of our life. It generates the wages to pay the bills. It produces valuable goods and services that others use when we produce them and we use when others produce them. Or it can bring a tremendous sense of satisfaction in our life and it can open up many engaging opportunities, but it can also be strenuous, exhausting, take us away from our family and also sometimes lead to injury or even death. So work kind of cuts both ways. And we've no doubt all experienced the high seasons of life at work and the low seasons of life at work. And so often, those highs and lows are a result of the many people that we interact with in the workplace. Coworkers, clients, subordinates, bosses. So much of our work, it actually just involves relationships. And those good relationships can be a significant source of tremendous joy, tremendous fulfillment, all this encouragement that we actually need in our lives. But bad ones can be a significant source of irritation. They can make us weary. We can actually dread going to work because those relationships just drain the life right out of us, which is no doubt why Paul selected work relationships to be among the three that he uses to show us how it is that we live a spirit-filled life as we submit to one another, in this case, in the workplace. Okay, so Paul starts out, bond servants, obey your, early master, your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. So just as he did with wives and children, Paul begins with the subordinate in the relationship. And this breaks with the convention of the day. He would have most likely or most certainly have started with the heads, but he doesn't. He starts with the subordinates, and he does it for a host of reasons, but chief among them being the voluntary nature of the relationship that Paul actually has in mind for us here. So it's not obey because you're being forced to. It's obey voluntarily or obey willfully. Because as we all know, there's a dramatic difference between being forced to obey and willfully obeying. Willful obedience, it changes everything. It changes the atmosphere, our attitude, and the quality of our work. And if you think about it, our will, which is part of our inner being, is at the heart of this entire teaching that Paul's been after us with since around September or so. It's a thread we certainly see throughout all three examples, marriage, parenting, and work. The quality of the relationship and all of those relationships is all driven by our will, how much we desire it. And that's why it seems Paul's determined to get us to see the value of willful submission. And today, we're going to look at it in a whole new light as he describes it in the workplace, but especially as it relates to this really interesting word he uses, bondservant. Now, the word bondservant appears frequently in Scripture, and it can mean a wide range of things. First, in the original language, it's defined simply as a slave, the way we typically envision slavery, being forced against one's will to work long hours, so often subject to harsh conditions and harsh treatment. It was a horrific institution that impacted so many lives, generations and generations of lives. Back in Paul's day, 
slavery was commonplace. Nearly one-third of all people in the area in which Paul operated, Italy and, and the Greece area, one-third of them were slaves. But bondservant can also refer to an involuntary or voluntary servant of another. For example, a person who's in debt to someone else could enlist themselves in bond servitude to the person they owe the debt to for a period of time until the debt was paid off. That would be the involuntary nature of it because the only reason you're really doing it is because you owe this person something and you need to pay up on that debt. But it could also be that a person voluntarily enlists themselves in bondage to another person, perhaps in exchange for food, shelter, money, or other provisions, just like the workplace that we see in today, where we provide labor in exchange for a paycheck and other benefits. But regardless of whether it's slavery, involuntary, or voluntary service, it's characterized by this phrase, devotion to another to the disregard of one's own interests. In other words, it's putting our master's interests ahead of our own, which in the case of these varying definitions of bond servants essentially involves giving up varying levels of freedom. And that's something that's really, really hard for us to do, to give up our freedom. So if we think about this in the context of a freedom continuum, it looks something like this. On the one end, there's no freedom, and on the other end, there's full freedom. Slaves, in the first sense of the word, had no freedom. They were subject to the whims of their master. Involuntary servants had a bit more, but they could not be released until their debt was paid. Voluntary servants were essentially able to come and go as they wanted to because they're just working for a pay, but if they choose to not show up, they don't get paid, and they essentially could get fired. And the master, of course, had full freedom with regard to how things went down in the workplace. So everyone to the left of the master could essentially be considered a bondservant. That's who Paul was talking to back in the day. Now, when you think about this structure in our day and age, nearly all of us are bondservants at some level or another. Even if you happen to be the supervisor or the boss, you probably have a supervisor or a boss that you report to as well. And even if you happen to own your own business, you're still a bondservant to the bank until you've paid off all of your loans. So this teaching pretty much applies to all of us. And even if it doesn't for you, come back next week because we'll talk about the masters and you'll see how it does apply to you. But either way, we're to voluntarily obey our earthly masters. And then Paul expounds on the motivation and the character of this voluntary obedience. It's to unfold with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. So let's take these in turn. So we obey first with fear and trembling. Now you're probably thinking to yourself, that doesn't sound like voluntary obedience, fear and trembling. But by now I hope, as a church, we've started to get our arms around this language, fear and trembling, because we see it all over Scripture. That's why we have it affixed on the wall over there, so we are constantly reminding ourselves of the need to have a healthy fear of the Lord, because it's the beginning of wisdom. And that all starts by knowing who it is that we are, that little tiny guy up there that you see in the grand scheme of things. And it's also knowing who God is, the creator and sustainer 
of the universe, who is both sovereign and good. Sovereign meaning all-present, all-powerful, all-knowing. In fact, he can even give us free agency and still be in complete control of absolutely everything. Think about that. That's an amazing attribute of God in his sovereignty. Second, God is good. He's the very definition of love, and we're going to talk about that here in just a few minutes. He's perfectly holy, and he is the author of truth. Whatever he speaks comes into existence. As we just sang, he put those stars in the sky, and he knows them by name. He declares things at times. For example, he wants the water to be separated from the land. And so he makes that declaration, and immediately we see oceans forming, and we see land masses forming, and we see shorelines forming. Why? All because of God's spoken word. And so we revere him. We respect him. We are in awe of him. We tremble at his glory. We dread the thought of ever letting him down. We're terrified at the prospect of disappointing him. It's our greatest desire to serve him, to obey him, and to please him. Bringing him joy is how we glorify him. And Paul says that's the exact same way that we're supposed to obey our earthly masters too. So this is a high calling here. Second, Paul says, with a sincere heart, meaning the voluntary obedience comes from the heart. It comes from our inner being, where our wills happen to reside. And it's sincere, it's genuine, it's a heart with a singular focus, a heart free from pretense and hypocrisy, meaning we don't believe one way in our heart and then behave another way that is completely counter to how it is that we believe inside of us. No, our body, our minds, our hearts, and our souls are aligned so that we obey our earthly masters with the totality of our being. Again, you see how high this calling is. And then third, as we would Christ, the final and ultimate controlling motivation here. It's the exact same motivation we saw between wives and husbands and between children and their parents. Paul has used this same language for all three of them. And as you'll recall, it led to two main teaching points. First, we willfully obey our masters in the workplace just as we would Christ because he's essentially our ultimate master, our earthly boss. He's just middle management. We're working for the Lord now. Second, we willfully obey our masters in all things that are of Christ, meaning if the boss directs us to do anything that's counter to our walk with Jesus, we're not to obey that. But to the greatest extent possible, we are to obey our earthly masters just as though they were Christ. And then in typical Paul fashion, he shows us what we're not to do. And I know in this day and age, we don't like negatives. In fact, we bristle around negatives. But negatives are so good because they show us in very clear terms what it is that we're not to do. Paul writes, first, not by the way of eye service. And we all know what that means here because it happens all the time at work. In fact, economists have a word for this. It's called shirking where we deliberately, whenever we're in eye shot of the boss, we work really, really hard, and we're deliberate about that, very diligent in front of the boss. But when the boss steps away, we shirk. We catch a nap. We turn to social media. We zone out. Shirking is a massive problem 
in the workplace, and it's completely inconsistent with spirit-filled living. So this should be convicting to all of us because if we find ourselves shirking in the workplace, then this is an issue for us that we got to get after. we got to tackle this. It's important to remember we work for the Lord now, and His loving eyes, they're always upon us. So we want to do everything that we possibly can to glorify Him. And then Paul adds another qualifier, not as people pleasers either. And we also know what he means here. That's that whole buttering up the boss, laughing at his stupid jokes all the time, or constantly reminding him that he's indeed a handsome and powerful man, where we become far more focused on currying his favor than we actually do on doing our job. Paul reminds us right here, obeying is not about polishing the boss's apple. It's serving him or her dutifully. And then after these two negatives, Paul repeats himself with an even greater degree of specificity here. So he starts out, obey your earthly master as you would Christ. Don't shirk, don't flatter. And then he reiterates, rather, obey your earthly master as a bondservant of Christ. And it's in these words that Paul underscores this pivotal teaching point that we just keep bumping up against here. When we're born again into a new life in Christ, everything changes. And I mean absolutely everything. He is our master now, meaning we now work for the Lord. So when asked what we do for a living, our response should probably be something like this. My business is serving the Lord, and I happen to sweep floors to make ends meet. Or as Paul might have said, I'm a servant of the Lord, and I happen to make tents to pay my expenses. But whatever we do, we're bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. And I love that he comes back to this word heart again. Here we are. It's so important that we see this. Paul's essentially teaching, put all you've got into all it is that you do, body, mind, heart, and soul. Be fully united in all that you are and all that you do. Because you're doing the will of God with your work. So do it with all you've got. In other words, be excellent in all that you do. And I wonder, have you ever thought about your job like that before, that you're actually doing God's will in your work? Because where he's planted you is where he's called you. And so he's working out his will in your work. And that's important when you think about our everyday, ordinary lives. We think they're ordinary, but they're actually quite extraordinary because we are doing God's will here. And that's why we're to get after his will with all we've got, down to the very depths of our inner being, aligning our will with his will. Eyes fixed on that cross around our day, and that's what spirit-filled living is all about. We're all in in all that we do. We're devoted to excellence because, yes, our shoveling is part of God's will too, so we do it well. We do it with excellence. Even when the boss is a pain, our coworkers are dragging us down, or we don't feel like it, we still do God's will. And Paul tells us in very clear terms what that actually looks like in his letter to the church in Thessalonica. God's will is straightforward. Three things, joyful, prayerful, and grateful. And when you're a pastor, you spend a lot of time meeting with people And one of the prominent topics of discussion is God's will. People have all sorts of ideas what it is that God's will for them to do in their lives. And I'm not quite sure 
what they're referring to most of the time. All I know is there's three things that Scripture says. Be joyful, be prayerful, and be grateful. And whatever it is that you're doing, wherever God has planted you, that's His will. It says so right in Scripture. That's the attitude we need to bring to that, the atmosphere that Paul says take with you when you go to work. Rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man. This is the last part we're going to cover today because it kind of ties it all together and points us directly back again to this issue of our will. Now hang in there because this is some robust, some rich kind of teaching here. Um, But it's so important that we grasp this. And I think as we walk through this, you'll start to see how this is what Paul's been hammering on now for months for us here at Four Mile. When we think about submitting in marriage, obeying our parents or obeying our earthly masters at work, it all comes down to our will. We have to choose to do something. That's what an act of the will is. And we've heard this language before because, as you recall, the Bible actually defines love as an act of the will. It's not a feeling, it's a choice. And I always get strange looks whenever I say this, particularly when you preach it, because people are like, oh, no, 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 no. It's something I feel down here. And I always think to myself, I don't know what it is you're feeling down there. It could be lust. It could be some form of envy. It could just be a bad burrito from last night. I don't know. Because the Bible makes it really clear. Love is an act of the will. And this particular context really helps us see why we so often confuse some feeling that we have with this truth that is an act of the will. It's a choice. Because when we love someone, we willfully choose to do things for them that bring them joy. And it in turn brings us joy whenever they experience joy, which is what compels us to choose to do it in the first place. You see, I think it's that feeling of joy that we so often seem to confuse with the choice that we actually have to make in order to love someone. So this is how our will seems to play out within this notion of love. And this is important because remember, the motivation for this entire teaching is what? That we imitate God, how? By walking in love. So now let's see how this applies to what Paul means here by rendering service with a good will. Of course, as we know, this word good, it means right. It's one of those characteristics of God that we looked at. It's over on that slide on the wall. And as we've learned, part of his goodness is that he is the very definition of love. And that's why to imitate God, Paul teaches, we gotta walk in love, because God is love. So in this specific context, Paul teaches that we walk in love by how we render our services at work. And since love is an act of the will, we must choose to do our work such that it actually pleases God. Our focus isn't even on man anymore. You see, we work to glorify the Lord so that it brings him joy. And if we truly love God, it will also bring us joy whenever God experiences joy. And that's why this teaching is really all about how our will comes in line with God's will. And that, of course, happens whenever we love God, when we choose his glory above our own, whenever that is our greatest desire 
Our heart's desire is to love God. It's ultimately what lies at the very heart of spirit-filled living. That's what the Holy Spirit is always about the business of doing in the lives of those who've been born again. As he sanctifies believers, he fills them such that he aligns their wills with God's will so that they seek God's joy in all that they do because it brings them immense joy to please their their creator and their sustainer, God. It's how we convey our love to God. It's how we imitate him by walking in love. And again, that's not something that happens to us. It's something that we actively engage in. It's a choice as we're being sanctified and being made more Christ-like as it unfolds in the workplace, in our everyday, ordinary lives. And that's why it's so important that we get after this each day. Now, in closing, it's important that we don't miss one really important thing here, because Paul's talking to all bond servants, those who voluntarily pay off their debts and go to work, those who involuntarily do that, and he's also talking to slaves. Now, think about that for just a minute. While slavery, in all its cruelty, is rightfully outlawed now, It wasn't back in Paul's day. There were over 60 million slaves alone in the Roman Empire. Can you begin to imagine the suffering, the neglect, the beatings, the misery, the shame? And Paul even is teaching to the slaves right here. He's telling them, in the face of all the suffering that you're facing, look past it all. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He's your master now. Work to please him. Work to bring him glory, whatever comes your way. Why? Because you love him. You're choosing to align your will with his will. And oh, by the way, when you do this, there are a whole bunch of rewards that come along with that. And we're going to unpack those next week. You're not going to want to miss that. Really important stuff. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your living and active word today. It truly is sharper than any two-edged sword. Would you pierce our hearts with the truth of your message today? Father, we confess that most days we are half-hearted workers, struggling with work dynamics, coworkers, bosses, people who don't seem to recognize our talents, or people who just don't lead well. But Lord, you know we especially struggle with our own sinful bent toward pride and self. Would you remind us each day when we wake up and our feet hit that floor that we are going to work to do your will because we love you, because you are our master and we desire to please you more and more. Help us, Lord, this week. In the mighty name of your son, we ask. Amen. (laughs) 